Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes again from our archives and was recorded on August 13th of 2014. In today's episode, our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, hosts a debate between Yanis Varoufakis and Scott Baker. Varoufakis is a Greek economist and politician who attained a PhD in economics from the University of Essex in the United Kingdom. Dr. Varoufakis is also the founder and secretary general of European Realistic Disobedience Front, a progressive left-wing party of the Democracy in Europe 2025 movement. He also served as Greek finance minister in 2015 and is currently a member of the Greek parliament. Scott Baker is the president of Common Ground NYC, a Georgist group focusing on social justice and economic equity for all. He is also a blogger for the Huffington Post as well as the op-ed news. We hope you enjoy this talk and please check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. I'll pick it up from American Economic History, uh, 1945. America is dominant in the world. It has 50% of the manufacturing ca- capacity of the world. The world is on its back. The United States has to step in there and switch from its classic protectionist stance to a globalist free trade stance. Now, America, for those who don't know economic history, America became the largest and most powerful uh, country in the world by, in effect, practicing protectionism from the early 1800s to the 1900s, essentially following uh, following a Listian model. Uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, laid the groundwork saying that let's close our borders to English manufacturers on the import side, we'll have free trade within the borders, and the learning by doing uh, capacities that are encouraged in our, within our borders would make us a strong and powerful nation, which it did. However, world circumstances, or empire st- circumstances, caused the United States policy planners to have to make changes. And uh, post-World War II, uh, they, they discovered or, or decided on a Bretton Woods solution on fixed exchange rates, and those fixed exchange rates uh, broke down in the early 1970s, and I think this is where we would pick up our our narrative. And I I would throw the question open to Giannis by saying this. Do you think that the policy was inevitable, that the United States would have a a breakdown of Bretton Woods, uh, or was this part of a plan that would allow for such a breakdown and, uh, in effect, maintain America's position in a different sort of way? Giannis? To you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the invitation. In a sense, it was inevitable. Because you, you mentioned the Bretton Woods. Now, what was the Bretton Woods? It was a combination of the pre-war gold standard, effectively a system of fixed exchange rates between the major powers of the West, and some minor ones, some minor Western countries. That's very similar to the gold standard. The only difference was that in the Bretton Woods system, the dollar was the one that was pegged to the gold and all the other currencies were pegged to the dollar. Um, that's a minor change from the gold standard. The major departure from the gold standard was the New Dealer's realization following the 1929 debacle that if you simply um, fix exchange rates 
you're creating massive capital flows that lead to instability. So what you need to do is you need to regulate for capital flows and primarily you need to recycle surpluses to make sure that the surpluses, possibly because of monopoly power, possibly, possibly because of excess capacity of uneven development that are um, created in the surplus regions of that global economic system are recycled to the deficit region to us to maintain the demand for the surpluses of the surplus region. And that audacious global recycling mechanism was effectively administered by Washington. And what are the, were the surpluses that were being recycled? They were the surpluses of the United States of America. Between 1950 and 1965, let's say, almost 70% of American profits and surpluses were recycled primarily to Western Europe, the Marshall Plan being just one example, and to Japan. And Washington was very carefully and jealously maintaining the aggregate demand that was allowing American factories to keep producing by recycling the surpluses of America to these two major regions in Asia and, and in Europe. Now that system is the system that collapsed in 1971. And why did it collapse? It's very simple. Because by the late 1960s, the American surpluses had turned into deficit. And you can't recycle surpluses if you no longer have them. So there was a discontinuity. Um, Washington is uh, admirable in the sense of recognizing when the writing is on the wall. And President Nixon on the 15th of August 1971 said, well, no more surpluses, no more recycling, the Bretton Woods system is over. And now we have a brave new world that effectively turns the whole post-world phase between the 1940s and 1971 on its head. We have a new era in which financialization grew and the rest is history, as they say. Let me ask you this, Giannis, let me interject there. Why, after uh, the United States had primed the pump for, let's say, uh, Europe and, and Japan, uh, why did the, the United States allow those countries to export, to build up? Why wouldn't they have encouraged uh, an internal buildup of uh, demand uh, by increasing consumption in those areas and, in effect, uh, you know, balance the U.S. economy? So, in effect, you might have had balanced economies all throughout the world with uh, minor trading necessary for raw materials and so forth. Why did the United States have to, uh, in effect, allow the imports to come into the United States? Why couldn't they have just said, no, we'll, we'll have some semblance of autarky uh, between the world so that we don't need to build up these, uh, uh, these uh, surpluses? Why didn't they nip that in the bud back in the 70s and 80s? Two reasons. The first one was Japan in, in its relation with China. In the 1940s, 44, 45, 46, policymakers in Washington were particularly worried about the fact that the dollar was the only convertible currency, except for the Swiss franc, which is too small to worry about. So effectively, the world, world trade, Western capitalism, was based on one pillar, the dollar. They had experienced, these people, what happened in 1929. And they knew that a new recession in the United States if there was a single pillar, a single currency, a 
single convertible currency, not just a reserve currency, but a single currency, would simply spread like a bushfire throughout the Western world. And the recession would be amplified and uh, would travel very fast and very wide and very deeply throughout the Western world at a time when the Soviet Union was rising in both influence and economic power. Remember, in the 50s, the Soviet Union was considered to be a success, however strange this may seem now. So they wanted two additional currencies to play the role of stabilizers, to be two additional pillars that support the main pillar of the dollar. And they selected, quite clear that they did that, um, they selected the yen and the Deutschmark to be those currencies. Now, for those currencies to become sufficiently strong in order to be able to reinforce the main dollar pillar of the Bretton Woods system, they needed powerful industrial sectors in which to be founded. Now, the problem with power, powerful industrial sectors, as you know, as we all know, is that they have a tendency to overcapacity, to produce more goodies than the local economies can absorb. So the German economy very soon started producing more cars, more steel, more electronic than the German economy could absorb, similarly with Japan. Which means that in order to carry out this plan, to maintain and reinforce this global plan, as I call it, the, of which Bretton Woods is just a part, they had to create circumstances so that the German, in, German industry could have a market. And that was the European Union. The whole point of the European Union, uh, of the fledgling European Union in the 1950s, with that started as a cartel of coal and steel, if you remember, was to create a vital space surrounding Germany that would provide Germany, German industry, with the uh, effective demand that would be necessary in order to prop up the mark so that the Deutsche Mark could prop up the dollar. Similarly in Japan. But let me just finish about Japan here, because the same plan applied to Japan. The difference was that in, Jap in Japan's case, I'm talking about 45, 46, 47 now, the plan was that the vital space of the Japanese industry will be China. But of course Mao Zedong, with his successful revolution, put an end to this uh, plan. And then immediately, policymakers in Washington decided that since Japan didn't have a vital space, the Japanese industry could not find markets in Asia for its goods it would have to throw open the American market to it, turn the American market into Japan's vital space. And very soon after, this propping up of the German and industrial sectors created uh, productivity growth in Germany and Japan that ended up being to the detriment of the competitiveness of American industry. And the second reason, which is going to be very quick, that was the first reason. The second reason, was American companies were globalized. And when they globalize, they want to have free trade. So when Ford starts building components and cars in Europe and in Asia, it, it doesn't like the idea of autarky within the United States. Very simple. That's clear as to what they did. But let's assume that uh, the Morgenthau plan for Germany was carried out where you didn't uh, allow Germany to remanufacture. Uh, what would have happened, in your opinion, to Europe if Germany wasn't allowed to pick up its manufacturing? Why would the Americans have voted not to carry out the Morgenthau Plan, which was essentially to keep Germany as an agricultural country 
and not as a troublemaking, expanding mag- manufacturing co- uh, co- country. Europe would have fallen to the Soviet Union. It's very... Don't forget, from the perspective of 1945, the Communist Party in France had 35% support, 60% support in Greece, 60, more than 45% support in Italy, if not more than 50%. Germany itself had a very strong social democratic movement that was very radical and quasi-Marxist at the time. And the, besides that, this is the geopolitical question. Germ, American factories were operating at full capacity in 1945 using munitions, aircraft carrier, aeroplane. And the great worry in Washington was what happens when they switch into uh, civilian production, starting producing refrigerators and washing machines and automobiles, as they did. But there is not sufficient demand within the United States market for those goods. They realized or thought that it was absolutely imperative to export American products to Europe. But to export American products to Europe, they had to dollarize Europe. And to dollarize Europe in a way that would be sustainable, they would have to have a manufacturing sector in Germany. Because Britain was going under. In 1946, the you know, pound sterling lost, lost its convertibility. It was on a terminal decline. The United Kingdom government was annoying the United States immensely, as was the French government and the Dutch government for wanting to reconstitute their empire in India, in Indonesia, uh, and, uh, and in, in the Indochina in the case of France. And Germany, having been defeated and being occupied with many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of American soldiers still there, was the ideal pillar that would support both industrially and monetarily the United States global plan. That could not be achieved through autarky. But you realize, of course, that ultimately the American working and middle class uh, would suffer in terms of uh, lost job opportunities and so forth. How would the American uh, uh, policy planners recon- reconcile that and, and have the internal, let's say, contract that Americans came to expect uh, abrogated for, for purposes of uh, geopolitical gain and strategic gain around the world. Uh, how would they have addressed that problem or did they just avoid that problem and assume that it was just part of market forces that created that and, uh, and just leave it at that? Uh, of course, history does not concur with what you said. The 1950s and 1960s was a period, a, a golden century for American middle class. There was indeed no conflict between support of Germany and Japan and the creation of this global system uh, and the interests and well-being, the welfare of the vast majority of Americans. Um, the system actually worked very well. I think its downfall was due to two things. Firstly, it fell a victim of its own success because success allowed the American administration, especially in the 1960s, 
to imagine that it was there to stay and to abuse the exorbitant privilege of the United States to print dollars in order to support two things. Firstly and primarily, the Vietnam War. And secondly, the Great Society program, which, however wonderful it was, and I, I'm speaking to you from the LBJ school, obviously I have a great deal of appreciation for the Great Society program, but nevertheless, it, uh, in conjunction with immense expenditure on the Vietnam War, it simply undermined the monetary stability of that global plan that the Americans so audaciously and brilliantly put together after the Second World War. And the whole thing came crashing down once Europeans and others started challenging the peg between the U.S. dollar and gold. Again, uh, just to comment on that, uh, on that subject, the, one of the keys in, in, uh, in the health of a country uh, would be the, the health of its, if it's, if, of its manufacturing. And manufacturing has to be looked at as a, as a well-balanced set of industries that are interrelated and, and from low to high uh, transfer a learning by doing in technology within the base. And that was kind of the, the basis of the American uh, development for the preceding hundred years. By outsourcing, let's say, or, or the fact that uh, you allowed the two dominant uh, countries in Asia and in uh, Europe to uh, start manufacturing and in effect we started outsourcing. We lost some of our competitive edge, at least in the middle and lower ends of, of, of manufacturing. And I suppose the plan has felt that we would retain enough of the high-tech edge and because of our dollar strength and, and the, the privilege of the dollar, we could certainly subcontract and buy anything we, we needed. Of course, the problem would be unemployment uh, in the United States would, would, would rise. And once Germany and Japan uh, reached the same levels of, uh, of, of development we did, their employment would, unemployment would rise. But yet, Japanese and German unemployment did not really rise, but ours did. And it, it's created, uh, to this day, increasing social uh, pressure. Do you th consider that's a fair trade-off, or that American planners would have considered that a fair trade-off for the privileges of empire? Let's be, let, let's be historically accurate here. In the 1950s and 60s, unemployment in the United States did not rise significantly. Unemployment was not a problem. And also in the 1960s, you had a massive diminution, a massive reduction in poverty level, which has to count as a major success story, right? Um, the problem was that the United States, unlike Germany and unlike Japan in particular, did not have an industrial policy. So I, w I agree with you on this. The industrial policy in the United States even to this day, is effectively the military-industrial complex, which is a major industrial policy, right? It's not insignificant. I mean, all the advances in the electronics uh, sector, in IT technologies and so on, came from that. So they are not to be scoffed at. But the problem in, uh, in, in the United States was that there was this bifurcation. There was industrial policy only through the military-industrial complex, and the rest of the industries 
was, uh, were simply let, left to their own devices and they were the ones that fell prey to the increasing competitiveness of Japanese and German industries. There is another element too that the United States um, effectively did not take into consideration seriously and that's where they let, you know, they, they dropped the ball in a sense. Uh, the relationship between finance and industry, both in Germany and in Japan, the relationship between the banks and industrial conglomerates is very tight. Financial capital was never allowed to run riot and to, be, and to, to acquire um, a zeitgeist of its own. Uh, they were always intermingled, the interests of finance and industry. This is something that America did not attempt and uh, it was to its detriment. But the big problems that you are referring to the outsourcing, massive outsourcing, and the rise in unemployment, and the de-skilling of labor, and the reduction in the real wages of American blue-collar workers, which have not been reversed since 1974-75. These are not the causes of the 1971 collapse of Bretton Woods. No, they are the result of it, because they followed after 1971. They did not precede the end of Bretton Woods. So Bretton Woods and the global plan that I described is a pretty spectacular success overall, except that the American authorities assumed that that success would go on forever. They did not husband it properly. And the result was that using the extraordinary privilege that that success of Bretton Woods and the global plan gave them, they abused it. And then, of course, Nemesis follows hubris. And then they had to go to Plan B. And the result of Plan B was the rise of Wall Street, the collapse of, middle, of the middle class, and all the problems that we've had after the 1970s, which I call the global minotaur for my own reason. Let me, let Scott. Scott, do you want to weigh in on this? Uh, I understand what you're saying about the military-industrial complex and certainly agree with that. Uh, I would add to that that there's a banking complex in addition to that and that that uses leveraging and debt uh, to essentially uh, de-industrialize uh, the country, as, as Michael Hudson has put it, um, creating a situation where uh, basically we're destroying companies and uh, outsourcing, that's on one aspect, and the other aspect is using the assets of the companies against them as, as a form of debt, which enriches certain people, like, say, Mitt Romney, uh, but at the expense of the working and uh, middle classes. Uh, so is this a miscalculation uh, by uh, American uh, government, or is this just something that happened because uh, the uh, rentier class, let's call them, uh, became so big and powerful they became out of control? To run right. And here comes my answer. And you know, I mean, it's, it's not that I am making it up. In 1971, 1970-71, a young man back then in Washington, D.C., by, by the name of Paul Volcker, was working for another gentleman called Dr. Henry Kissinger before Henry Kissinger became went moved to the State Department when he was still at the you know the National Security Advisor. And in that document, in that report by Volcker to Kissinger, um, we read 
effectively what was going to happen in the next 20 years. Volcker asked a very simple question. He said, now that the United States is shifting from a surplus to a deficit, how can it ma maintain its hegemony? And the answer he gave himself, which is typical Paul Volcker, <laughs> was, well, if we can't recycle our own surpluses, we have to recycle other people's surpluses. And what ha happened, and we all know that after the 1970s, is we have a complete reversal of the global plan era, of the Bretton Woods era. In the Bretton Woods era, remember, the United States was a surplus country. It was selling more to Europe and to Japan than it was importing. And its surpluses were then recycled through administrative channels to Germany, to France, to Japan, so that the demand would be created for more exports from the United States to Europe and Asia. After 1973, you have a complete reversal of this thing. What you have is the United States is operating like a huge vacuum cleaner, sucking into its territory the net exports of Japan, of Germany, and of course later China. And how was it financing this expanding deficit? It was expand financing it through a major flow of capital, of surpluses, from Germany, Japan, and later China, to Wall Street. And then Wall Street was using this money either in order to channel it in the form of foreign direct investment or to purchase U.S. Treasury bills and finance the deficit of the federal government um, or effectively to play the game, the new game of financialization. Because what do bankers do when you give them between three and five billion dollars uh, net daily to play with? They find ways of making it grow through the creation of financial instruments. Now, my answer, therefore, to the question, why did the regulators allow the banks to create the banking complex that you referred to, Scott, is very simple, because the flow into Wall Street of these tsunamis of capital, of profits, from Europe and from Japan, and later from Russia and China, of course, these flows were essential for maintaining this new model of American hegemony. And unfortunately, victims of that new model of global surplus recycling were the American blue-collar workers, the American blue, uh, uh, middle class, because keeping a lid on American wage inflation, effectively turning it into wage deflation, was one of the mechanisms by which foreign capital was attracted into Wall Street and why capital, foreign capital, found higher returns in the United States than anywhere else. Uh, yeah, following up on that, uh, we now have a situation where the foreign capital is coming in and uh, you're not uh, getting the productivity out of this country anymore. So obviously the, the jobs are disappearing. First the wages were deflated, now the jobs are going away entirely. Uh, so. Do, and another thing uh, in respect to that with China, uh, now China has uh, a trillion and a half or perhaps two and a half trillion in our treasuries. Um, and some people have suggested that we start taxing or otherwise discouraging China from buying treasuries because in effect they're strengthening the dollar uh, and weakening the yuan or the renminbi um, and that's uh, making their goods cheaper and ours more expensive, even though it's not because we're producing better goods, it's simply a currency manipulation. 
So would you be in favor of making it more difficult uh, for China to buy our treasuries and to uh, manipulate downward their currency with respect to ours? No, I certainly wouldn't. I consider this to be uh, a, a thoroughly unconvincing take on what's going on. Look, China became effectively an expanded Hong Kong, a, diff a, a new version of Japan. It wasn't that China took over Hong Kong, Hong Kong took over China, right? Um, their developmental model was completely adapted to the global hegemonic model that the United States put into place after 1970s, with Paul Volcker, actually, as uh, one of the major uh, agents of that change uh, since he took over the Fed in the late 1970s. Now, China understands that which Germany doesn't these days, or Europe doesn't, that you can have two of the following three things. You can have free trade, of the three things being free trade, free capital movements, and control exchange rates. You, you can't have all three. Now, I think it's absolutely understandable from the perspective of China that in the global environment that America built, and in which China was trying to extricate itself from poverty in the 1980s and 1990s, that the, the two things that they selected was free trade and a control exchange rate. They did not choose capital uh, freedom. And that was quite right. Now, when the United States of America, as Paul Volcker advocated back in 1970-71, decided to build its the strength of its own elites, not of its own middle class, but of its own elites, of the Mitt Romneys of the world. Uh, not uh, average Jack wor working in um, declining manufacturing in middle America, but Mitt Romney. The moment that they decided to impose that model upon the world, China had no alternative than to do what it did. And at the moment, given the design of the global system, an effective design, a, a kind of spontaneous order that emerged from the choices in the 1970s and 80s and 90s of the United States administration, it would be senseless, utterly senseless, to make it harder for China to purchase U.S. treasuries. This would simply make the American budget deficit harder to refinance. It would make the American debt more expensive. It would create a serious debt problem in the United States. Well, I don't think that the United States has a serious debt problem. It has, it has other problems, but the, the debt is just a symptom. It's not, it's not a main cause. Um, when you have a, a country like China, which is trying to build up its economy, and remember, China, if China implodes today, the United States is going to suffer really badly. China is going to implode if it can't maintain a growth rate of around 6-7% minimum because they are a country on the move. They are a country where there is huge internal migration that has to be maintained in order to maintain stability, political and social stability in China and not to have another repetition of Yeltsin's Russia. Because if we have this repetition of Yeltsin's Russia, I can assure you that Europe is going to go under and then there's going to be a domino effect that's going to uh, affect adversely the United States. Now, I'm not saying that the current state of, of, of affairs is uh, either defensible or it can be maintained. 
it causes increasing inequality, both along, across the world and within the United States. It's destabilizing um, uh, the social fabric. It is causing American manufacture, manufacturing to, to, to shrivel and die. And all these things are things that we have to seriously to look into. But effectively, to turn this into a zero-sum game between America and China and to say that, as Mitt Romney was promising, that he's going to make life hard for, for China and to treat it as a currency manipulator, this is ridiculous. We live in a world where all the major powers are currency manipulators. The United States is a currency manipulator through QE. China is a currency manipulator. Germany is a currency manipulator by imposing austerity on the rest of the Eurozone and therefore keeping the Euro relatively low compared to what its own currency would have been, given that it has three times the current account surplus that China does. This is a game. The, 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 monetary, uh, the global monetary environment is a game. Everybody is gaming. The question that we should be answering, asking ourselves is not how are we going to take a bazooka each and start killing each other because then we'll all end up dead. But the question is how can we actually infuse a little bit of rationality to this global system? And I think that the first period after the First World War, the Bretton Woods era, offers us good clues as to not, not I'm not supposing or suggesting that we should reproduce that, that the Bretton Woods era. We can't do that. It's bygones. But nevertheless, there are some important clues in there about what we need to do now in order to stabilize our economies, both here in the United States, in Europe, in China, in Latin America. They are completely out of kilter at the moment. And this is not going to be done through punitive uh, impositions of tariffs. It's not going to be done through uh, taxing uh, the treasury holdings uh, of China. It has to happen on the basis of a new Bretton Woods agreement, a new Bretton Woods conference, and I would recommend for that the G20 as a starting place. And in particular, you know what I would recommend? I would recommend that the G20 should initiate the creation of a new international organization, which I would call the WDO, the World Development Organization, that should be effect the, the effective bulwark that stabilizes the damage caused by the World Trade Organization. Giannis, let me just interject there. Uh, okay, you in effect maybe re re reconvene uh, the original spirit of, of Keynes, but uh, basically saying, okay, we reconvene a, a uh, Keynesian-like uh, recreation of, of Bretton Woods uh, with the bank core in his... In his, in his and his uh, ability, you know, his desire to, you know, make sure that surpluses and, and deficits didn't build up to the point that they built up today. But that, that begs the question as, uh, would you allow the Chinese to continue to, to build up their manufacturing capability, their technology, at the expense of, let's say, American manufacturing, which is, which is de declining, where would the shift stop? The Chinese, I don't think, can stop their momentum. They would have a very difficult time of it. Americans seem to be complacent about, or at least not howling too much about the fact that they're losing their jobs uh, on, a, on a continuous basis. If I'm a, if I'm a planner, an American planner, I think Americans are howling a lot. Do I, do, I really, do I really care if I can, in effect, build a virtual world 
uh, that countries really don't matter so much anymore, and that I can basically build a virtual world and a subsidiary world, world not necessarily geographically contained, and that I can basically manage that, that kind of a process without worrying about national borders. Your comment on that, Yanis? My, uh, uh, my answer will be modular. Let me say that, firstly, personally, I disdain national borders. I think they are a scar on, on, on the planet's face. Mm -hmm. But be, besides that, where I think we will agree is that at the same time, I think that national governments have a duty to their people. And in the United States, as well as in other countries, our governments have dropped the ball there. They have neglected their, their duty to the common folk. And they have been utterly and uh, cynically been hijacked by the uh, what, by what I call not so much by the military-industrial complex anymore, by but by by the bankrupted banks after the collapse of 2008. So uh, the answer is surely not to blockade ourselves behind national borders, and to imagine that the growth and development of China is a threat to the growth and development of American manufacturing. At the moment, this is what is happening. At the moment, when Apple or Ford or General Motors builds a factory in China or transfers technology there or subcontracts jobs there, there is a loss here in the United States. But this is because we live in a, in, in a world whose blueprint is uh, quite devilish. There would be, you ask your question by saying, well, what if we were to convene a World Development Organization uh, modeled along the lines of the International Clearing Union that Keynes had, had suggested in the Bretton Woods uh, Conference, but which was rejected by the American side? Well, if we manage to do that, and I think we can, I think that technically speaking, not politically, but technically it's not difficult to do, that would mean that if China maintained the surplus vis-a-vis -vis the United States while it's it was growing, its economy would be penalized through this international clearing union. And similarly, countries with a deficit would be penalized. So there would be automa automatic stabilizers that would then create the circumstances so that the manufacturing development or development manufacturing capacities in China would not clash with the interests of American manufacturing. And they could become symbiotic and they could have synergies. And, you know, the creation of a new manufacturing technology in, in, in China would be rather synergetic with better technologies here in the United States, especially as technology is moving ahead to a new phase with 3D printing, which for me, I, what, you know, what I share with the Georgists is a disdain for oligopoly and monopoly power, this, and, and for corporate power, for that matter. Uh, th th this augurs quite well uh, because it, it promises to effectively render corporate monopoly power obsolete. But it is not going to happen surreptitiously, it's not going to happen automatically, and it will not contribute to a better life for the average citizen both in the United States and in China until and unless there is macroeconomic global coordination. By that I don't mean a global government. 
I don't mean more authoritarianism. I don't mean greater losses of national sovereignty. All I'm talking about is a way of combining the great importance of trade with the great importance of keeping capital flows under control. Because there is a very great error that most libertarians make to assume that free trade also means free capital movement and that it is the same thing to ship components from um, or physical products from China to America as it is to press a button in the New York, uh, in some New York bank and transfer billions of dollars to a Chinese bank. These are not the same things. Uh, free trade or trade is a contributor to common prosperity. Free capital flows is a greater source, a, a huge source of destabilization. Yanis, what do you think the chances are of reconvening a, uh, a new Bretton Woods type conference? And I'll tell you why I asked that question. If I'm in the banking industry, I'm in the brokerage industry, I'm in the finance industry, I really don't care to change anything. I mean, essentially, I can take the money and run and, and worry about the aftermath, you know, in some faraway place. Why, I've got a lot of power, uh, I'm doing good, you know, come to Manhattan, you'll see how good it is. Uh, why would I care if I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a guy on, in Manhattan and Wall Street, why would I care about anything changing? Your comments. Not only will you not care, but you will use every power at your disposal to end such talk of a new Bretton Woods or any kind of global coordination along rational economic lines. Because let's face it, as you put it, Wall Street is doing exceedingly well through this irrationality in action. So the answer to your question, how likely is it, is that it's not very likely, and that's why I remain pessimistic. But our job, Marshall and Scott, is to break down the uh, facade of Tina, you know, the ideology that there is no alternative. What we are in the business of doing, uh, both you in, Hen in the Henry George School and I in the various realms in which I move, is to show that there are alternatives, there are rational alternatives, that there are obvious alternatives that a good society can and should embrace. Uh, the, the, Scott? You know, take the, the, you know, Scott, what, for instance, Henry George would say these days. Um, his suggestion would be that uh, rents resu resulting from uh, a historical accident that has led some to have ownership over land uh, they should be taxed, and that means well, that we would also say we should that have the creation of money out of thin air would also be a monopoly that would be susceptible to taxation. We would look at it not just the land tax, but we would look at monopolies wherever they're created, <laughs> if they're artificial and they're basically antisocial in uh, in nature. So yeah. we would uh, go, Scott. Why don't you weigh in? Uh, yeah, Henry George uh, advocated for. Uh, public creation of money, in other words, the government creating the money. And uh, it, since he was a part contemporary of Abraham Lincoln, uh, and Lincoln produced the first United States uh, notes uh, to fight the Civil War, and at which point they became 40% of the currency, um, this remains an option for us as well. 
Now, we had United States notes up through 1996 and 14 series, uh, but of course they became marginalized by being uh, so uh, little in, in the amount. Uh, so wouldn't this be an option uh, to fight uh, this kind of uh, hegemony of, over uh, money, this monopoly of money, uh, to have a public option for money as well, at least domestically, uh, so that the government could uh, uh, create uh, a, an opportunity and an alternative uh, to uh, the private creation of money by banks. And uh, wouldn't that be a way to, to get people back to work and to create the jobs in this country uh, that are not being created by the private sector, which seems to want to speculate and to do currency uh, manipulation and, and so forth instead? Scott, I, I, I have no doubt that it, if Henry George was alive today, he would uh, be fighting the battle for uh, not just regulating Wall Street, but effectively nationalizing it or rendering it you know, so different to what it is today that it would become a servant of the economy, not the major scourge of the economy that it now is. Look, take an example. I mean, you, you, we mentioned before and you mentioned before, you know, Henry George's uh, penchant for uh, taxing monopoly profits and rents, to be more precise. Look at the price of aluminium today. Aluminium is a commodity, is a metal that goes into almost everything from, you know, space uh, rockets to cell phones. Now, we know that there is a bubble in that market and we know why it is there. We know because that Goldman Sachs and other major financial institutions have directly purchased warehouses where aluminium is being stored and they're on purpose reducing the outflow rate from those uh, warehouses to companies that have actually paid for the aluminium. And the only reason why they've slowed down the pace at which aluminium is moving out of their the warehouses is in order, in order to inflate its price. Now, it is impossible to be a Georgian these days and not to do something about Goldman Sachs. So th th we have a major battle in our hands because now, you see, in 1991, 89-1991, communism collapsed. In 2008, capitalism collapsed. We no longer live in a Darwinian kind of market world, market-driven world in which we have the survival of the fittest, however ugly that might be. We have a situation now, after 2008, where the greatest capacity to extract rents uh, goes to the most bankrupt of banks. The more bankrupt they are, the greater their capacity to mobilize the rest of society on their behalf so that they can enhance their rent-seeking behavior and operate like uh, a scourge on the planet. And, you know, I mean, fighting this fight means that you are turning against, you know, very powerful enemies whose power, however, and this is a great irony of our time, is growing the more bankrupt and, and, you know, the greater their failure at their own game. We live in a very irrational world. This is why I advocate, uh, along with Henry George and other monetary reformists, that we break up the monopoly of money creation itself uh, and that uh, that way the politicians are not uh, going to be bribed by money because they have their own supply. Uh, because it seems that politicians are very cheap in the world of finance that these bankers operate uh, to buy off uh, Congress is a very uh, modest investment from their point of view. I guess and uh, they'll continue to do it, and uh, there's no reason, uh, as Andy says, why they wouldn't. 
Um, but the only way to break that, I, I believe, is to break the monopoly on money as well as the monopoly on land and uh, land in the expansive sense uh, of meaning all resources. I agree. Uh, so if we don't uh, take this monopoly power away from the uh, financiers and the rentiers, uh, what uh, hope is there for the actual productive class to have any sort of parity in this society? Spot on. I agree. I agree entirely. But there's one danger in this narrative. Not that I disagree with you, but we have to be very careful how we hone it. Because today, there is, as we all know, there is a Tea Party libertarian argument against the monopoly of money, against the Federal Reserve, uh, against fiat currencies, uh, in favor of a Hayekian um, blueprint of privatizing money and uh, effectively um, allowing private, private banks to issue their own currencies. Now, this libertarian pipe dream, which of course is never going to come to fruition, is a political bulwark against the agenda that you just outlined. So, it's, we must be very clear about this. It is not, the problem is not that we have state fiat money. The problem is that we have a, Fed, a federal system, a federal reserve system in the United States, a European Central Bank in Europe, which is in the pockets of the private financiers. And the task is not to undo the state's control of money. The point is to strengthen it, but to make the state operate, operate, utilize its control of money on behalf of manufacturers, on behalf of creative people, on behalf of all those whose lives are wrecked as we speak by the rent-seeking behavior of the financiers that control through the revolving door strategy the regulators. So when you talk about having an international system and uh, saying that national borders are a uh, uh, curse, I guess, or what was the term used, uh, that they should not exist. Uh, if we get rid of national borders from the financial sense, but we still have them in the political sense, then the bankers will basically be unanswerable to anybody, uh, which it seems like they are already. Um, and maybe the, the bank, uh, BIS of Bank of International Settlements will be the, the chief banker of the world. Um, but I, I think that that would make things even worse. What's your opinion on that? I want borders between banking systems. I don't want borders between peoples. It is perfectly possible to throw open the Mexican-United States border for Europe to allow immigrants to come in rather than to be dying in awful little boats off the coast of Lampedusa in Italy to have uh, free trade of goods that are manufactured here and there and everywhere, while at the same time our financial sectors are prevented from free-flowing capital movements from one financial sector to another. It's, I, I, effectively, I'm calling for a reversal of the present. At the moment you have freedom of movement for money and no freedom, freedom of movement either for people or for goods. I'd like to see this reversed. Well, I, I think I, I agree with you. The, uh, there should be free-flowing movement of labor and uh, goods. 
the problem is, uh, well, we'll take Mexico and the United States since you brought it up. Uh, now, under NAFTA, what has happened is that our manufacturing has gone south to Mexico, uh, providing some low-level jobs for them, but uh, not really providing more power or uh, an economic base. Instead, uh, our subsidized agriculture secretary has, uh, agriculture sector has taken over uh, and replaced their farming sector, and basically we ship them cheap food uh, and destroy their agriculture sector in Mexico, and they manufacture cars more cheaply and destroy our manufacturing base in the United States. So uh, it, it's almost a lose-lose situation with the only winners being the uh, stock uh, grant uh, uh, corporate suite, including the CEOs who are paid out of rising stock prices based on uh, profits uh, and not production, really, uh, based on rising stock prices. So how do we uh, end this downward spiral where everybody loses except the elite 1%? Let me give you a couple of examples. You pull down the U.S.-Mexican border. Secondly, you allow Mexico to introduce controls over Monsanto's practices in Mexican agriculture. And thirdly, you stop that the, 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 the crime that is being perpetuated in Mexico as we speak, where five international banks, mostly American and Spanish, are choking the Mexican economy of credit because the, you know, the, the Mexican financial sector, as we know, after the previous crisis in Mexico, has been taken over by foreign banks that are using their monopoly power over the credit uh, market of Mexico, not in order to provide it with credit, but in order to starve it from credit, make monopoly banking profits there, then transfer them overseas. So reintroduce capital controls and controls over the financial sector in, 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 uh, uh, in Mexico, allow Mexican workers to work in the United States, and introduce environmental controls uh, that will force Monsanto to abandon the current predatory practices in, in Mexican agriculture. These are just three examples that you know, sort of roll out of, my, out of my tongue in response to your very good question. Giannis, okay. let me interject a, a, another question here. Let's assume we have a borderless world, but the very nature of uh, corporations and technology is in effect to create oligopoly or monopoly simply because the learning by doing, the engineering specialists, all of that uh, create a hegemonic position in almost every product line. If that c continues or occurs, then you, by definition, can't have enough purchasing power uh, to balance off the system worldwide. Let's assume it, the world is one country. You have, uh, you have some dominant, powerful corporations. Uh, they, in effect, turn into monopolies simply because of uh, you know, increasing returns to scale. Uh, there's no need to uh, pay out everything to, uh, to workers or anybody else. And you, you automatically create piles of capital, again, looking for investment opportunity. And unless you can tax away, in, in some sense, that monopoly and uh, re redistribute it uh, to pay, let's say, government expenses, you're only going to recreate the same conditions that you created in this world 
of, of borders. Uh, your comment on that? Oh, I agree entirely with you. You only have to look at the United, United States of America to, look, to see this unbalanced growth. You know, if you, if, when you're in Louisiana as opposed to when you are in Texas or California, you see within one nation, one country without borders, um, th this kind of uh, uneven development. In Germany, you go to, to Eastern Germany and, and you see a spectacular failure of German policy, industrial policy, to reinvigorate what used to be an industrial sector there. Go to Italy, the Italian South, after a hundred years almost of unification of the, of the land, uh, the, the Italian South is like a different country, a third world country compared to the Italian North. So markets will, will never recycle capital in a way that creates even manufacturing capacities and development. Never. They will always fail. So what we need is extra market um, industrial policy. And if we need it in Italy, if we need it in the United States, we need it across the world. The original idea behind the World Bank was to, to, to plug this gap. Unfortunately, the World Bank has been operating as an agent of, of underdevelopment in the countries that should be developing. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't do it differently and better. Already we have evidence in Brazil from development banks there, state-controlled development banks, that um, sur surplus recycling directed towards investment production can make an important difference. We need to take these lessons and apply them in the United States and across the world. But we have to do it in a way that is, that is looking at the general good. Because we live in a, you know, it's a very small planet and we should think of the interests of all of us as utterly interwoven. One other question I think we'll, 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 we'll kind of close this discussion. One uh, major question I think would be uh, energy or oil, uh, 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 the oil uh, situation. I mean, if you look at uh, industrial statistics at the, at the inception of uh, the Industrial Revolution, let's say around 1750, and you plotted the growth of all economies in the aggregate, let's say using a GNP number, and you put against that, that, uh, that number the increase in use of carbon energy, you'd find almost a perfect correlation between production, GNP, and carbon fuel usage. A very tight linkage that might be breaking a little bit, but by and large, that's almost an eye in trend, which means that access to, to uh, carbon fuels is going to be decisive for at least another 50 to 100 years, I would imagine, and control of those, those resources, which are, which are really focused or located uh, in the Mideast, in the size, an area the size of Texas, maybe 70% of the reserves. And then, of course, with fracking and so forth, you're finding reserves around the world. But by and large, uh, there are limited energy uh, resources against the immense productive capability of the world. And therefore, those who control those resources are basically going to decide uh, uh, industrial policy probably for the next, let's say, 25 to, to 40 years. Uh, the United States, in effect, does control the bulk of that. Uh, and uh, when China and Asia, for example, 
really gear up and muscle up in terms of, uh, of energy uh, needs, how do you see that playing out? I mean, that's, to me, uh, possibly the most decisive decision point that we're going to have, and it may trump all the other issues of Absolutely. reconvening a new Brenton Woods and, and things of that nature. Any comments on that? And, and we'll close the discussion with your comments on, on the energy policy and the implications from a geopolitical point of view and from the aspirations of, let's say, Asia coming on strong. There are two issues here that are utterly interwoven. Uh, there is, the, you know, the, the, the question of global warming and um, the damage that we are inflicting upon our poor planet. And there is the question of the geopolitics and the um, the way in which scarcity and differential productivity in the energy sector uh, is feeding into rent-seeking behavior in the way that Ricardo and Henry George understood very well. From the planetary point of view, from the environmental point of view, we are behaving like a virus on the planet, and a very stupid virus at that, because we are going to kill the host on, on which we are, be, we are parasitic. On the question of the economics of it all, I, I find that the impact of the, the particular form of rent-seeking behavior that we have now from the various uh, oil companies uh, and the aspiring players in this market are destabilizing a very fragile and unstable global economy. But I think that from the perspective of the next 50 years or so, one of the major problems we have is that our technology has not caught up. Our technology in, in, in terms of energy, the energy sector, has not caught up with our technology in IT, in 3D printing, in all the other realms of manufacturing in particular. And we need a major technological breakthrough in order to make possible whatever political will there is, the world over, to, turn the, to help us turn the corner in the, in the energy market. Do you know what I think I, we should be thinking about? We should be thinking about the Manhattan Project. Because let's face it, renewable energies are, are not up to the task for the time being. Fracking is a very crude way of going about the problem of peak oil and all that. What we need is we need a technological breakthrough that will make genuine renewable energy cost effective. And we are nowhere near doing this. When the Chinese scientists are working on their own, the American scientists are working on their own, the German ones are working on their own. But think about the Manhattan Project. What was the Manhattan Project? The United States administration, in a very difficult moment in world history during the World War, in order to prevent the Nazis from getting to the nuclear bomb, to the atom bomb first, they took the best minds, put them together in Los Alamos, in, you know, in particular uh, labs, made available infinite resources, almost infinite resources to them, and said, find the solution. We should be doing the same thing, and it should be an, a, an international collaborative effort for the purposes of averting this simultaneous interwoven ecological and economic problem once and for all. Okay, Yanis, uh, thanks for uh, joining us on, on this debate, and Scott, thank you for participating. Uh, we'll continue this hopefully another time. Uh, we'll mix and match new, new uh, speakers and, and new topics, but uh, this was a wonderful uh, 
debate and covered some very important topics. So we'll say goodbye to everyone who's, who's watching this and uh, wait for our next in this economic discussion series. Thank you.